Mac Power Users, episode 706, Media Management with Casey Liss. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my friend and your friend, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good, David. How are you? Excellent. My uh, my voice is a little off today, so you'll have to bear with me, but otherwise I can't complain. Good. Uh, I can't complain either because we have a very special guest with us. Welcome back, Casey Liss. Hello. It is such a pleasure and honor to be here. I always love an excuse to talk to you two fine gentlemen, so thank you for having me. Yeah, we had you on a couple of years ago, uh, episode 587, and we want to have you back uh, now for a couple of reasons. Y'all, we're always like checking in on our friends, uh, but you have a, uh, a robust, I'm going to call it robust, a robust media management <laughs> strategy that we're going to get into. We're going to talk about Plex. We're also going to talk about your app that's also in the media management landscape. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Yeah, you're just, you're, you're just deep in it, man. Uh, Mm -hmm. And on more power users this week, which is the longer ad-free version of the show, we're going to check in on the betas and uh, in particular how they affect someone working in iOS development. You know, we talk a lot about it from the user perspective of how hot is your phone going to be? Can you leave home without (laughs) a charger? I cannot currently. Beta 5 has been really bad for me. But I want to hear about how you approach it as someone who is writing software against these platforms while also talking about them. Uh, because if I don't know who wouldn't know, but you are one third of the Accidental Tech Podcast, uh, a show covering Apple. And uh, one of my favorite shows, I did not miss an episode. And uh, you were also on Analog here on Relay FM. You got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, busy bee, busy bee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my phone lately has been doubling as a pocket warmer. So <laughs> I don't know if you guys, you know, the, the beta, it just warms your pocket for you. It's kind of nice. So, so is that how you tell seasons in the broader LA area? Is just whether or not your pocket is warmer because your weather is otherwise perfect pretty much always. So, is that is that the only way you can tell? Uh, it's not perfect always, but it, it is how you tell when you're in beta season. <laughs> it's enough. true, dude. It's it's so true. Uh, Mary picked up my iPhone 14 Pro Max off the counter the other day, and she's like, "Why is your phone hot?" I'm gonna like, oh, go. It just does that. It's fine. <laughs> it's just what happens. It's just oh, it's just boy. what happens. Uh, well, Casey, I want to start uh, by uh, catching up a little bit, and let's start with your gear. Uh, what is your uh, what's your Mac choice these days? Yeah, so when uh, probably when we last spoke, when was that? That was twenty twenty one. I uh, yeah, that was before the transition. Is that right? So um, at that point, I was probably on my my iMac Pro, which is a computer I absolutely loved. Yeah. Um, and and I adored that machine, but even I had bought it relatively late in the life cycle. I forget off the time I had when I had gotten it, but it was getting a little bit long in the tooth by the time I replaced it. And I replaced it in late 2021, so so late that same year that we last spoke, uh, with a 14-inch Max MacBook Pro, which those portmanteaus make Stephen oh so happy. Mm-hmm. A 14-inch MacBook Pro, so that's a M1 Max MacBook Pro uh, with 64 gigs of RAM, which I did because. I was leaving a computer with 64 gigs of RAM. I didn't want to, you know, go backwards. Yeah. In retrospect, I don't regret it, although I don't think it's really necessary for the kind of work that I do. Um, I'll probably continue to do it because I'm a dummy, but <laughs> I, I don't think I really needed it. I think 32 would have been just fine. 
And then I knew I was going to be going, I think at this point I was going to be going into the um, Apple Photos, you know, shared uh, the Apple iCloud photo library uh, world. And so I wanted to get enough hard drive space to not only cover regular usage, but to cover my, you know, one terabyte or roughly one terabyte photo library. So I got a four terabyte uh, uh, SSD in this thing, which I absolutely do not regret. Casey, if you're looking for affirmation for buying too large of a hard drive, you <laughs> are the in right the right spot. place. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you are got, definitely in the right place. Eight terabytes on this laptop, baby. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because I was thinking to myself, you know, it, we're coming up on M3 time. You know, is it time for me to refresh my laptop? Which, honestly, I don't think I have any pressing need to. This thing is is a monster in the best possible way. I love this computer. Probably my favorite computer ever and and i think it's my favorite apple computer that i've ever owned um but yeah i was looking at what would i do if i were to do it today and i'm not running out of my four terabytes but um there's less breathing room than i would prefer so i think i might do the like two thousand dollar eight terabyte option if i ever or whenever it is i upgrade this well just know that you'll get some hate email but the fact (laughs) is it is really nice it's really nice having everything on your main drive but on the 64 gigabyte question, I actually thought long and hard about that. I just recently did an upgrade and I only got the 32 gigabytes. And my logic was just that with the onboard RAM, I mean, this is not RAM in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. And and now that I've been running this machine two or three months, doing my usual workload on it, I cannot tell at all. Because uh, I went from 64 gig to 32. I don't get the out of memory message. It's just, it's fine. So um people out there looking at that question you'll probably be just fine with 32 I, and i get you know i get the the desire for 64 especially when you're doing development work but uh it, it is these new machines 32 in the new machine is not 32 in the intel machine yeah yeah that's the thing is when i was making the purchasing decision uh, it was still early on in the you know apple silicon world and we didn't really suss out we as a as a community didn't really suss out you know what what is 64 gigs in in terms of old ram of intel ram if you will and i think you're right that i think i would probably be fine with 32 gigs um i don't know that i will do it because again i'd like setting money aflame when it comes to buying computers um but uh, i think i would be fine now david what do you you do a lot of like final cut pro though don't you i'm trying to think what is the what is the way in which you tax your computer the most these days yeah video work Video okay. work. Recording and editing is where I, I use it up. But mm-hmm. it's I honestly can't there there's a guy, I'll find a link for the show notes called Max Tech, I believe he called. He's a YouTuber and I, I like his work. And one of the things he did was he got a thirty two and a sixty four and he he put them through this like stress test where and this is with the M one generation minus M two. But he like loaded up like twenty Chrome browser tabs and twenty Safari tabs and you know, uh, you know, a bunch of like very heavy RAM apps, and the differences were minuscule. That he he really had a hard time getting a difference between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I think he ultimately concluded because the RAM is right on the die, and you know, they got that fast SSD. It's just which is also on the die. It just you know he he felt like the sixty four gigabytes. I think. Like if you do certain like really, really high end photography with really big files, I think there's some places that he could catch a difference, but those weren't workflows that I do. So 
uh, I ultimately went 32. I, like like you said, it, you know, when you're buying a computer, uh, you know, you can easily just bump up the RAM. It's not as expensive as bumping up the the storage, but but that was like my one like sacrifice. The fact that I bought this massive eight terabyte drive. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I went from 96 gigs in my Mac Pro to 32 <laughs> in my laptop, and like it's totally fine. I, I think when we're talking about Apple Silicon. I think it's more, I think the, like the most important metric, because you can't upgrade any of it, uh, at least in a notebook, I think is storage. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's a brave new world. So you're using a MacBook Pro, uh, and I know mm-hmm. uh, you are a uh, external display kind of person. So what's going on there? Yeah, so when I first got the machine, uh, if memory serves, I was hooking it up to a couple of actually pretty affordable LG 4K monitors, which were, by the letter of the definition, they were not retina, but they're close enough to be retina. They were like two uh, 20-some-inch, 22, 24-inch LG 4Ks. And then I eventually came upon a second-hand LG 5K, an ultra-fine 5K, which ran great for about a month, and then it died, and then it disappeared for like two months getting repaired, and that was super fun. And you can I chronicled all this on, on ATP if you're interested Um, But eventually that came back. And now uh, what I've done is uh, I I was using that as a as really the only monitor for a long time. And then when the studio display came out, all my prayers were answered. So now what I'm doing is I have a studio display with a visa mount, visa, visa, whatever you call it, mount directly in front of my face, you know, parallel with the, the back of the desk. And then I have the LG 5K at like a 45 degree angle off to the right hand side as sort of an accessory monitor. Um, and actually, the LG 5K, ever since it had has been repaired, so far as I knock furiously on my Relay FM uh, wooden block, hmm. so far it's been just fine. And I think as long as I never ever ever touch the USB C, you know, Thunderbolt connection in the back of it, hopefully it'll last. Um, but yeah, so I have both of those running into a CalDigit TS4. Yeah. Some people have had some mixed experience with the TS4. I mine has been again as I knock furiously on wood. Mine has been rock solid since I got it. It is a fortune. It's like three or $400 or something like that, which is bananas. But the nice thing is I have one cable that gives me power, both monitors, mm-hmm. my USB, uh, my uh, MixPre 3.2, which is the, the thing that converts my microphone's XLR into USB. Um, I've got a, a, an iPhone stand from 12 South with an integrated charger. I have a few ports in the front. I have an SD card reader if I needed it, but so does my laptop. Like all of this stuff is plugged into the CalDigit TS4. Again, for me, it gets my highest recommendation. I am so happy with it. But again, be wary that some other people have had a little bit of a rough time with it, especially if you're overseas. Like I think maybe maybe it was in the UK, but somewhere they found that the power supply would whine at this like awful high pitched tone if they were on a different voltage than America. So do your research. But I I really, really like it. And uh, it's worked out well for me. Yeah, that, that's my setup as well. I've got a MacBook Pro and a CalDigit and the studio display. And at first, I wasn't sure that the studio display would be okay passing through the CalDigit. I wondered if, okay, do I need a cable for the CalDigit and then the studio display directly to the laptop? But like you, mine has been totally fine. And it's so awesome to you know sit down and plug in one cable and have my whole setup come to life. Yeah. And very quickly, I had erroneously believed and I think publicized that I could not drive both 5K monitors through the CalDigit. And I think what had happened was I didn't look closely when I was initially initially connecting everything. 
And if I recall correctly, I can't mess with it right now because I'll cut off. But if I remember right, on the back of the CalDigit, there's like two or three USB-C ports that are Thunderbolt and then like one that is that is just straight USB-C or something along those lines. I, again, I'm going on a vague memory here. But I think I had circumstantially and accidentally connected the LG to the one USB-C port that it that it isn't supported by, that, that doesn't have Thunderbolt on it. And so I was rearranging things on the CalDigit just a few months ago, and I thought, well, let me just try this one more time. And sure enough, it worked no problem. So I'm running both 5K screens as well as, you know, uh, the, the microphone setup and a few other things. All of that is going through the, the CalDigit TS4 all through one cable to my, to my MacBook Pro. And yeah, just being able to disconnect one thing and, and then walk away with your entire computing life. Like, I love that. And although I will forever sing the praises of the iMac in general and the iMac Pro specifically, I have always been more of a laptop kind of person. And now, now I can have my cake and eat it too, because these things are just as fast, you know, with an asterisk here or there. They are just as fast as almost any desktop Mac you'll run into. So I can bring it to a picnic table and leaving aside the fact that I have, you know, one quarter of the screen real estate, I can otherwise work no problem, which is just so amazing. How often do you do that? I mean, how often do you use it as a laptop versus as a desktop? Um, that's a really good question. I would say it, in a normal everyday week, work week, I usually once, maybe twice, I'll go somewhere to work for, for a morning at the very least. Um, there, there, we talked about this on ATP months ago, but there is a picnic bench uh, in a very shady uh, park. Shady is in shaded, was, not shady is in sketchy. Say. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> phrasing, phrasing. Uh, but anyway, there's a there's a picnic bench covered in shade, uh, shade trees, and uh, it's right by a Verizon wireless ultra wideband. Uh, I don't know if I would say tower or access point or what have you. So the fastest internet connection that I have is when I'm tethered to my phone on that picnic table where I have done <laughs> speed tests, I kid you not, at like two and a half, three gigabytes a second down on my telephone and then connected to my Mac, which is bananas. I have a symmetric gigabit connection here at the house, but that is not the fastest access I have. The fastest access is through the freaking sky, which is the weirdest thing. Technology is so awesome. Uh, but yeah, I'll do, I'll, I used to occasionally, well, what during COVID times when I was allergic to the indoors, I would only ever go and work outdoors, you know, at picnic benches or parks, or what have you. Um, now for the last couple of years, I guess the last year or so, um, or even I guess really the last six months, I've been much more willing to go indoors. And so sometimes I'll go to uh, Wegmans, which is a semi-regional grocery store chain that has like a really nice cafe area. Um, our local libraries in the county in which I live here in Virginia are actually extraordinary. And so I will very often go to a library and work. The trouble with that, though, is I really, really miss the screen real estate. And I, I don't I don't begrudge or I, I don't regret is, I guess, the word I'm looking for getting a 14 inch laptop because this to me, this is the right size for a laptop. But it is tough to not have, you know, 10 K's, if you will, of screen when I'm working on code. And I do sidecar with my 11-inch um, M2 iPad Pro, which, you know, spoiler alert, that's what I'm using for an iPad these days. And I do sidecar with that. And I find, particularly when I connect via USB-C to the laptop, it's actually pretty darn good, uh, but it's still not the same. What I want to get is, you know, some sort of nice but very thin portable monitor, but I'm too cheap because I know those are super expensive. Yeah, but they, they aren't as expensive as they used to be. Those little that's extra monitors are coming down in price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I keep an eye on a few of them. I don't remember what models I've been looking at, but 
I think there will come a time I will probably grab one, but for now I'm just sidecarring and calling it good. Tell me about the the M2 and that iPad. Yeah, so I had a the the not the OG iPad Pro, but the um, OG iPad Pro that had Face ID. So it was that 2018, I believe. Yeah, and that's now the kid iPad. And truth be told, it wasn't. It was old in years, but it wasn't old in performance. If that makes sense, it really wasn't that slow or anything. But I felt like it was about time to upgrade. Remind me of this when like the the new M3 iPad Pro is you know all super hot and has the differently mounted camera and so on and so forth. And I'm going to probably end up buying another, but sitting here now, my thought was, Oh, it's, it's been about four years. It's about time. I really like my iPad pro. Um, I like it even though I don't know why, which is kind of funny, but I am not a David Sparks. You know, I'm not a Federico Fatici. I don't, I don't live on my iPad like you guys at least used to, if not still do, but I do really enjoy having it. And I will sing from the rooftops to anyone who will listen Having any sort of like real computer, and you can argue with me whether or not an iPad is a real computer, but having a real computer with an onboard cellular connection is the best. I would would do anything to have a cellular radio in a MacBook Pro. Take all of my money, all of it. Just take it all and put a cellular radio in there. I would love it. Uh, And so I do have that, that iPad. And whenever I am on, whenever I'm going somewhere like, you know, from for more than just a little bit of time. You know, if I'm going to spend some time in the car and I want to get something productive done, but I don't necessarily want to haul my laptop or I just won't, don't want to have to worry about tethering, I'll use the iPad Pro and I really, really like it. I don't think it was a compulsory upgrade for my 2018, but I do really enjoy it nonetheless. I can't help but think that Apple is going to give us a cellular MacBook once they release their own cellular radio. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought they had kind of backpedaled on that a bit, if I'm not mistaken. Stephen probably would remember yeah, better than me. I but they bought a lot of tech from Intel, I think, and mm-hmm. it seems like it hasn't gone super well. So I don't, I don't know when that's right. going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But I would, I would love it. And then just to round it out, you know, an iPhone, an iPhone 14 Pro, uh, five twelve gigabytes. Uh, I am having. <sighs> I'm having very uncomfortable thoughts about what's coming in just a month or so. If the, if the. Uh, the Periscope camera is only on the big phone. I might have to try the big phone for the first time ever, which I'm really not happy about. Really not happy about, but I really would love to have a little bit more throw on this camera. I would love to have a little bit more zoom and I would love to have that in the camera that's always with me. We'll see what happens. I don't know. Famous last words, but I've resisted the Plus Club for all these years. And I used to make fun of Stephen and Mike, particularly Mike, for being the founding members of the Plus Club and Federico. Um, but but I I think I might actually fold this time. I'm telling myself I'm going to give it a shot this year. If if it does get the fancy camera, we'll see what happens. And then uh, to, again, to round it all out, a 41, 41 millimeter Series 8. I have little itty bitty baby wrists. And so I feel very subconscious when I have the bigger watches on my wrist. I have been debating that, you know, maybe whenever I upgrade this watch, which I have no current plans to, maybe I'll just suck it up and and just own it and get an ultra because everyone I know, hi, Steven says that, you know, they're amazing and the battery lasts forever. David, are you on an ultra now? I don't remember. Yeah, I am. In fact, I just did a poll on my, off my newsletter, got a thousand responses and 20% of the people answering had an ultra. Oh, wow. That's way more than I would have expected. I was surprised, but you know, this is a self-selecting group of nerds, right? That are reading my newsletter, but I, I did not expect that number to be that high. Yeah, same. 
Yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, you know, w- the fit is a state of mind, right? Like if I just own the fact that I have a little teeny tiny wrist and a huge watch sitting on it, then whatever. But um, but yeah, so we'll see what happens. We'll see if I actually commit to that in the same way. We'll see if I actually get a big iPhone. Casey, I just ain't wears an ultra. Yeah, see, there you go. And, and I've, I've been next to her briefly at a keynote or something like that. And I know she is a very, very small woman. So if she can do it, then I, I should be able to. Although I really would like to see them release a smaller size ultra. I think yeah, that, same. that hopefully that happens this year, but who knows? Yeah. The other bad thing is if I get myself a big watch, like an ultra, then I get used to it. Then suddenly, like, even though I'm not a mechanical watch kind of guy for the most part, I have always wanted like a Panerai, which are these just, but I know they make small Panerais, but they're hilariously expensive, way more than I should ever, ever spend on anything like that. And they're usually, the ones I like are usually quite physically large. And so I'm scared that I'm going to go get a very expensive Ultra and then be like, oh, you know, that Panerai I've had my eye on, I can (laughs) fit it now, or it can fit me now, or what have you. And so then I'm really screwed. So don't let me do it is I guess what I'm saying. (laughs) This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. 1Password is the solution that I trust to keep all of my secure data safe. Yes, of course, I have my logins there. And of course, I use 1Password to create and remember strong, unique passwords for all of my logins. But 1Password also manages two-factor authentication codes. It also is where you can store bank account information, driver's license information, software licenses, on and on. And what's great about storing all this stuff in 1Password is not only that it's secure and easy to get to, but 1Password itself doesn't get in the way because... The team at 1Password work hard to integrate into a wide range of browsers and operating systems. So I can move throughout my day from my Mac, iPhone, iPad, PC, the web, and my 1Password data is with me wherever I go. I can use Face ID and Touch ID to get into it, and it integrates directly with iOS's really cool keyboard features to let you get to passwords easier than ever. I want to go back to that banking information thing for a second. I own a couple of businesses, right? Very often, I've got to send people routing and account information. And for a long time, I would log in to my bank website and try to find that page. Or, you know, maybe I kept a voided check in my drawer and typed them out. That was ridiculous. Like, save them in one password. Now I can very easily get to that stuff and send it over uh, when asked. It takes a little time off my day anytime it comes up. And it always makes me happy that I keep that stuff in one password. So whether you're looking for a password manager for yourself or for your family, your loved ones, or password management for teams, 1Password is a solution you should look at. Go to onepasswordcom MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. You'll get 20% off as a listener. Once again, that's onepasswordcom MPU. Casey, as we record this, your new app call sheet has been out in the world for uh, about a week and a half now. Mm-hmm. Uh, call sheet, if people have not come across it, there's links in the show notes. But you have made an application that is in the same world as IMDb. So you can use it to look up facts and actors and trivia and history, all this stuff on TV shows and movies. Uh, but it's made by someone who actually cares about their users. I think a lot of people <laughs> have seen IMDb, which I think is owned by Amazon, actually, yep, have, yep. has seen it sort of uh, become worse and worse over time. And so you've built this to counter that. Uh, you're not going out there and like putting all this data in here together. You're using a service. I'll let you talk about that. Uh, 
But before we get to it, what prompted you to to make this app? I think a lot of people would look at this category and say, "Well, gosh, IMDb is not great, but you know, they're sort of the the five hundred pound gorilla in the room. Well, what could I do?" So tell me about that decision making. Yeah. So when I sit down and watch a movie or a TV show or what have you, I am always looking at, oh, you know, oh, where do I know that actor from, or what 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 was she in, or what did they do before, or what whatever the case may be, and. Obviously, like anyone else, I would choose you know the IMDb app. Um, generally speaking, I don't typically love having um, apps on my phone that are for website that that are easily replicated by websites. But the IMDb app does a better job than the IMDb website, so I had that app on my phone. But every single time I logged into the IMDb app, I would be prompted, "Do you want to log in?" Well, no, I didn't the last four hundred and fifty-five times that you asked. I'm pretty sure I don't now, but thank you for asking. And then there would be, you know, autoplay videos or advertisements or all sorts of just junk. And I don't remember exactly what happened or where I was or what what the inciting incident was, but it occurred to me, well, I know right, I know how to write code. And I am familiar with this website called the movie database. And the movie database is sort of kind of like a Wikipedia just for movies and TV shows. I know it's called the movie database, but they have a very robust uh TV. Uh, data set as well. Yeah. And it's it's designed to be used for these sorts of things. You know, they have a pretty solid API. You know, they make a couple of odd choices in, in the API, but for the most part, it's very, very good, very, very easy to use. Uh, it's very, very affordable. And a lot of open source projects use this. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty darn sure Plex uses this, which we'll talk about here in a minute, for a lot of their, you know, metadata about movies and TV shows and whatnot. And so I thought to myself, well, let me let me see if I can get like an, an API layer. So this is, you know, the stu- the code that would run on your phone that would talk to the, the movie databases web service. And I got that going in late January, early February. And then once I did that, I started, you know, writing Swift UI code against that to actually represent the data that, you know, you look up and so on and so forth. And it, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that this had legs. Now, whether or not anyone would desire to compete with free, I wasn't sure, but Certainly, uh, if you're someone who cares about the experience, which I very much do, I felt like I could I could go somewhere with this. And at first, that was just you know, let me kind of rebuild IMDb, but make it the way I would want it. You know, if if I was if somebody wrote an app specifically for me, what would it look like? Well, as it turns out, I was that somebody. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, I wrote this app just for me. But as I was working on it, it occurred to me that you know, this is a space that hasn't really had any innovation in a long time. And a great example of where I think I've tried to do something very bright is in late 2019, I was watching the TV series Watchmen, as was most of the most of the world. And I, I won't spoil anything, but suffice it to say, there's a character in that show that had a secret identity. Well, several, but one in particular. And as I was watching the first or second episode of the show, I was looking at the cast list and I wasn't familiar with the particular actor that played this character. And, and I, was looking at IMDb and I think they might've changed it since then. But at the time it showed the character that we had already met as well as the secret identity. So I got spoiled on episode Mm. like one or two for the secret identity. And I swore to myself that I will never make that happen to anyone else ever again. So in call sheet for TV shows and maybe for movies, I'm still working on what to do about movies, but for TV shows, at least you can go in there and there's a button that says hide spoilers and you can choose to hide um, character names. You can choose to hide episode uh episode names episode thumbnails 
uh, character, or excuse me, episode counts. So as an example, what if, you know, Joe Smith is in some TV show, but is only in it for two episodes and you think that, you know, Joe Smith is a pivotal character, but comes to f- come to find out they're only in two episodes. So they're probably either going to get killed off or maybe aren't a pivotal character anymore. So all of that stuff you can choose to hide. So you never have that happen again. And that's something that the IMDb app, for example, doesn't offer. And honestly, I haven't seen anyone else offer that sort of thing before. And so, yeah, call sheet in short is, you know, it's a it's a movie and TV and an actor, you know, and, and crew kind of encyclopedia done by somebody who really, really, really cares. You know, maybe you don't agree with my choices, but I really care. And pretty much every choice made in that app was made deliberately and made with a lot of thought. And so that's that's the shtick. That's that's the idea. Um, as we sit here, you like you said, it's been about a week and a half. The response has been phenomenal. I am I am overwhelmed and overjoyed with the with the press response, with what I'm hearing from users. Um, obviously, you know, people have a thing, a feature requests or or you know complaints here and there, but overwhelmingly, it has been extremely extremely complimentary, both the press and the response from users. And so I'm really thankful for that. Uh, and that's tough, right? Because this is the sort of thing that I think should cost money. I certainly worked very hard on it. It took me about six months to write this thing from start to finish. Well, not that it's done, but you know what I mean. And so uh, the the standard price is a dollar per month or $9 a year or the equivalent in your currency, in your local currencies. Um, and then I optionally, just for funsies, if you happen to know who I am or just really like the app or really like my work, I, I have, it's almost hidden. Uh, you, you can go in there and there's a button when you go to, where do you go to subscribe? This is more purchase options. And you can choose to, if you would like, spend $20 a year or even $50 a year. You get nothing if you do that other than my undying love. But I thought of it as like a recurring tip jar yeah. from you to me if you're so if you're so generous. And so uh, I feel like that's actually gone really well also. I mean, I think it's a fair price. In fact, I think I maybe should have charged more, but I, certainly I think it's a fair price. And family sharing is turned on. So, you know, I'm not trying to double dip when you're in your own family. So I really feel like the the app from head to toe is designed to be as friendly, top to bottom, inside and out as possible, including price. And I really think that it is worth a dollar a month or nine dollars a year for an experience that is well considered and treats you with respect. I really like that. It really shows your journey as a developer. I mean, when you look at this compared to your apps, this is truly your best work. <laughs> well, thank and you. I don't mean that negatively. I no, mean no, that, I'm with you. you know, I'm with you. You know, and um. And I'm really glad that you were able to do this because it's it's great. I, I signed up on day one. I appreciate it. Thank you. And yeah, I, I think certainly my I have grown with each new app and it's been, not to turn this into analog, but it's been very odd and good, but odd seeing the response that I've seen because everyone is like, oh, this is really, this is so tooting my own horn and I apologize for that. But you know, people are saying this is so good. A handful of people have compared it to apps that I absolutely adore, like Apollo, rest in peace or Carrot Weather, which I consider to be, you know, best-in-class apps for the iPhone. And to even be considered, I know that's so cliche, but to even be considered in the same neck of the woods as them, I consider to be incredibly flattering, and, I, and I'm so appreciative of it. And so it's been interesting. You know, I've always looked at a lot of my peers in the space, like underscore David Smith, like Marco Arment, who I co-host ATP with. You know, I feel like they're they're way above me. You know, they're they're super mega ultra, you know, iOS developers that that have that are doing things that I could never do. And it's been an odd thing for the last week and a half trying to reconcile that maybe maybe I'm kind of in that neck of the woods now. Maybe I'm kind of peer to them now, which is which is awesome. And I'm incredibly 
encouraged and thankful, but also very weird. And we'll probably talk about that more on Analog uh, in the future, which again, you can find here on Relay FM. The movie database was not something that I was familiar with before uh, I knew you were working on this app. Is it a crowdsourced thing? Do they have a staff? Like, how does data end up in here and how do you determine that that data is accurate? So I don't know a whole ton about the contribution process. I've actually never contributed anything to the movie database, but I do know that it is crowdsourced and I do know that it is all on the users, just like Wikipedia. And I don't, I don't know what the editorial staff looks like. As far as I know, there are very few employees or anything like that. In fact, it might only be just like one person, but nevertheless, it seems like, uh, it seems like there is, there is a pretty decent following there. And there's enough people that are that are using it, much less relying on it, that the data is usually pretty good. It is not as good as IMDb, I'll be the first to admit, but it's pretty, pretty good. And, you know, IMDb, to the best of my knowledge, does not have any sort of API. And honestly, I don't know if I would want to work with their API anyway, because I I, I wanted to provide a, a full stock, you know, top to bottom alternative. Um, they, but yeah, I became aware of the movie database on account of on account of things like Plex and other things in that space that I think all use this behind the scenes. And so that's how I became aware of it. And like I said, as I, the more I investigated, the more I realized, Hey, I could use this. This could work for me. I just want to give you a hug and tell you, you need to stop apologizing. You're a really good developer <laughs> and this is well, a really good it. app. You know, man, just, just accept that and own it. But either way, it, yeah, it is a great app. And I recommend anybody that has that question on the couch, right? Who is that guy? Mm-hmm. Where were they? And I, in my family, I'm legend for not knowing anybody on TV unless <laughs> they were at, remotely involved in Star Wars. Like right. they'll say, I don't know who that guy is, but I'll say, oh, yeah, he was in episode two of The Mandalorian. But generally, I don't know. So I like to, to use your app. Uh, and it's so nice. Because it's such a nice experience, and um, then I can join in the conversations with the kids and act like I know what I'm doing when, in <laughs> truth, I actually don't. Well, you know, if my if my app helps you sound or feel smarter, then mission accomplished. I I'm yeah. here for that. Or at least just fake it, right? I mean, right, fake it till you make it, baby. That yeah. that works. That's a, that's now right. You wrote the, you wrote this all in Swift UI, right? Yeah, it was like 99% Swift UI. I mean, I think there might be a touch of UI kit somewhere in there, but I think for the most part it's all Swift UI. How'd that go? Uh it went well for the most co- for the most part. I feel like Swift UI is one of those things it's been talked about to death. I'll try to make this brief, but it was especially when I was humming along and really clicking Swift UI can can make you accomplish incredible things in incredibly short amounts of time. I am not a particularly great designer. I had help from a bunch of friends on this, uh, most especially our mutual friend, Ben McCarthy. Uh, they were able to provide a lot of really useful design feedback, and I'm very appreciative to them for it. Um, but I'm not a particularly awesome designer. However, between Ben and myself and the things that Swift UI lets you do and do easily... I think this is a pretty darn good looking app, if I say so myself. It, it, I feel like it feels native to the platform because it is. It feels like it fits. It's not going out of control with like custom bespoke fonts and things of that nature. Like it, it just fits in right. And SwiftUI makes a lot of that possible because uh, doing a lot of these things in UIKit, which is the former tool, ch- well, I mean, it's still there, but most people have moved on, it seems. Uh, but the former tool chain for doing these sorts of things is UIKit. And there's nothing wrong with UIKit. It, UIKit made you know the first 10 years of the iPhone, and it's amazing. And you can do phenomenal things with UIKit. But 
the problem with UIKit is it's very, very verbose, extremely verbose in a way that SwiftUI is not. And SwiftUI, for all of its foibles, you can get a lot done with very little code. And a lot of things are done by convention rather than by explication. And so you, it is unreal how fast you can make a really incredible app. Like if I were to do the same app and have it look the exact same in UIKit, I'd probably be halfway done with it right now. It, it's it's really, it, it's a it's a supercharger for developers if you can work within what SwiftUI wants you to. As soon as you go somewhere that SwiftUI is unprepared for, then it gets real ugly, real fast, like real fast. And there were there were a handful of times that I had to do some kind of Herculean uh, or Herculean, whatever. Uh, I did go through some big efforts in order to make something work that SwiftUI really didn't want to work and. Most of that, uh, it actually ended up going away because I chose different paths to take, but there were some times that I was banging my head against the wall, making it work. But I mean, here again, I mean, the, the app is super fast. In fact, I didn't really talk about this, but one of my favorite things about call sheet is that it is absurdly fast. I mean, I, I really am impressed at how fast the movie database is. And I am really proud of how fast my portion, you know, the, the uh, how fast call sheet is. Because it's it's really stunningly quick. And the other nice thing is I don't have to do any of the gross tracking stuff. I've got a lot of feedback from people that said, you know, when I installed the app for the first time, it just ran. There were no prompts, no location services, no push notifications, nothing. It just ran. And I almost thought it was broken because I didn't <laughs> think that could happen anymore. Uh, but it turns out if you really care and really give a crap, it can. So, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your SwiftUI question. But yeah, I, I, I recommend SwiftUI. I really like it. It has its problems, but I really like it. Well, I mean, Apple released it with kind of the implied promise that this is the way to make software for all your platforms easier. And I think everybody acknowledged that when you start something like that, it's going to have some some sharp edges. But it's been a few years now, and, and we are seeing apps show up that are uh, all or primarily Swift UI based. Mm-hmm. It seems like the story you're telling us is consistent with other, other developers are saying that, yeah. It's great until it isn't, but the but the rough parts are seem to be getting uh, few, fewer. Uh, I'm not going to say they're gone entirely, but I mean they're you hit them less frequently. That's exactly right. And the other nice thing is SwiftUI. Well, the great thing is SwiftUI is is always improving. The bad thing is it can be a moving target from time to time, but it's always improving. And I can tell you that honestly, I don't plan sitting here now. I don't plan to wait too long to start using iOS 17 affordances and then requiring iOS 17 because A, I don't have like 15 years of history in this app. B, I kind of want to establish the the precedent that I'm going to be on the cutting edge. And so you, you I, I hope and expect my users to come along with me. Uh, but C, it, you know, there are things that, that SwiftUI gets with each new version that, that don't really get backported. You know, you can't really go backwards and do that in old versions of iOS. And so... It is way better and way, way easier for a developer if you can keep people on the cutting edge. And like when I, when this was released, as we sit here now, you know, uh, call sheet requires iOS 16.4. And I believe, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure I landed on 0.4 for a reason. And I think it was a Swift UI thing that landed in a point, in a point release of all places. And so, yeah, that if you're one of those people that doesn't like upgrading iOS, but you also like using new apps or having your apps update frequently, you're going to have to choose one of the other soon, I think, because as more and more apps move to SwiftUI, and as SwiftUI gets more and more features and gets more and more robust over the years, I think you're going to have a lot less tolerance from developers to string along, you know, one, two, three old versions of iOS. 
Is there anything in particular in 17 that you, you want to include in the app? Yeah, well, that's a very good question to which I have a kind of complicated answer. When the app was first developed, I used the standard search affordance, you know, up at the top of the screen and the where it is for every app under the sun. And then after getting browbeat by my beta testers who meant, who meant well and they were right, uh, I got browbeat for, for forever to move the search box down to the bottom of the screen so it's easier to reach. And they were right. In doing so, I had to get rid of the system affordance because at least in Swift UI, you can't have it anywhere but up in the navigation bar at the top of the screen. But before I made that change, I needed to know whether or not the user had tapped into the you know search box in, in order to do things in the user interface, like show recent searches, for example. And in order to do that with a, with a search box, now it's different because I'm using a standard text box. But before, when I was using the search box, in order to do that, you needed to dig way into UIKit in order to figure that out. And it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And in iOS 17, there's a there's a affordance right there for it. That's uh, you 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 can have Swift UI tell you when the search box is active and when it isn't, and it's just right there. And that alone, if I was still using that search box treatment, that that would be enough to get me on 17 alone because it's way more reliable, way less code, and the less code you have, the better because there's less place, fewer places for things to go wrong. So. Uh, that not relevant at the moment, but certainly a, a great example of one thing that is a teeny tiny little change on the API surface of Swift UI, but would have made hundreds of lines of my code go away. Uh, and another very quickly, another thing I'm really looking forward to using is TipKit, I believe it's called, uh, which is new for iOS 17. And that lets you put little like overlays on the screen in a very unobtrusive way that tell your users like, hey, tap here in order to hide spoilers, you know, or, or whatever the case may be. And I think that, you know, that's relatively obvious in, in call sheet today, but it's things like that, that I'm really looking forward to using. And I plan to do so sooner rather than later. Yeah. I think TipKit in particular is interesting because it lets you as a developer bring complexity into something that maybe you would be hesitant to because it would be hard to find. And if you have to make a decision like that, you can just tell people, Hey, this thing is under this button. Or if you know, if you go yep, here, yep. I have this over here. Uh, I think from what I've seen of TipKit so far, I'm excited that developers seem to be taking it on. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen too much of it, but I've seen a little bit float by on like Mastodon or whatever. And it seems really nice. And the handful of not reviews in a literal sense, but the reviews I've seen are that it's a pretty solid API that's really well considered. It's really good at not overloading the user with a thousand tips all at once. So I'm really looking forward to digging in on it. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by NetSuite. Your business gets to a certain size and then the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are suddenly taking a week. You have too many manual processes and you don't know the one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 36,000, 25, one. So what do these numbers mean? Well, 36,000, that's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25 is because NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down their costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, 
get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. Having all the information you need in one place makes it so much easier to make decisions. Having all that information you need in one place makes it so much easier to make decisions. I know as a business owner what a difference that can make and how much easier everything operates when information is available. It means that my team can make smart decisions and those decisions can be made faster. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash MPU. That's N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E, netsuite.com slash MPU to get your own KPI checklist. Our thanks to NetSuite for their support of the show. All right, Casey, the reason we always want to talk to you is of all the people I know, you are the most anal about getting all your stuff <laughs> ripped and and stored. I mean, I did this when my kids were little, but I haven't done it in years. But we wanted to do a show where we talked about, you know, media management. Mm-hmm. And we both said Caseyless. I mean, that's you, right? <laughs> Is that good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's good. I think that you uh you you live in the weeds on this stuff, and that's what we wanted for the audience, somebody who really knows where the broken parts are. But you are a media manager. Like you, you record a lot of your stuff. You've got it available when you're on the road, and you've developed a whole media management system. And I wanted to talk about that. So I'm not even sure where to start, except I know it involves a Plex TV. So I guess we start there. Yeah. So um, I, I think there's several components to to unpack here, and I guess. If if it's okay with you two, maybe I can start with like a very, very quick, broad overview, and then we can start digging into Plex, which is, Perfect. for the most part, the cornerstone of, of my media empire, if you will. Uh, so broadly, um, I, I my kind of thesis statement is I would like to be able to watch what I want to watch, when I want to watch it, on basically any device I desire to watch it upon, including, if necessary, on a plane or whatever the case may be. So, um, gener- for the most part, that's Plex that accomplishes a lot of these things, but there's, there's a whole side discussion, which I'm not planning on getting into today because it'll last seven hours, but there's a discussion of how you get media into Plex and we'll glance off that here and there. But one of the things that I wanted to do was get rid of the cable box that I have in my house. I'm one of the weirdos that still pays for cable because I believe in sports. And so, um, given that having cable is a given in this household, what do I do about that? And so what I've done is for a long time, I had an over-the-air antenna and an HD home run, which was basically a box that goes from the over-the-air antenna to Ethernet. And then other things on your network can can either play that video or can record that video. And then over time, I decided, well, that's great for the over-the-air channels, but what about cable channels? And I eventually got myself, I think actually a listener might've sent me one that they weren't using, but one way or another, I got myself an HD home run that takes a cable card. If you're not familiar with this, um, and I, I presume Steven, especially this will mean something to you. A cable card is a PCMCIA card, which is a blast from the past to say the least, but it is a PCMCIA card. At least it physically looks like one, even if it's strictly speaking, isn't one that plugs into a different box that then takes in coaxial input and has an ethernet jack on it. And the the PCMCA cable card gives me the authorization to watch cable TV from, in my case, Verizon Files. So this HD home run basically bridges cable television onto my network. 
And then I use an app called Channels, which I love to basically be a network DVR. Channels has excellent client apps on every platform. They have their server-side apps on every platform. I happen to run it on a Mac Mini, but the same Mini that's running Plex. But, um, but I use Channels for all that. And part of the reason I don't do this in Plex, which we'll get to in a second, Plex has a lot of the same functionality built in. But to my mind, the way I think of things is that Plex is my forever storage. That's things I want to come back to over and over again. Channels is my more ephemeral stuff. So the garbage reality TV that my wife and I will watch, that doesn't need to go into Plex. That can just live in its channels like, you know, purgatory or over there, quarantine over there. And once we watch it, we delete it like a regular DVR. Plex is a whole different ballgame. That's the forever stuff. So I have this Mac mini that's running the channel server software, but you could run that, I believe, on a Raspberry Pi. You can run it on an NVIDIA Shield. You can run the channel stuff on just about anything. Uh, you can run it on Linux. You, know, you can run it basically anywhere. And then the Mac mini also runs Plex. So Plex is where basically all of my media watching is, is happening. Uh, I don't use Plex's features with regard to photos. They do have a kind of bespoke competitor to iCloud photo library. They have a bespoke competitor to iTunes match, which is not really the same as Apple music, but it's kind of spiritually similar. Um, I don't use any of those features. I really only use Plex for video, and I don't use it for the over-the-air stuff that I use channels for. I use it for just long-term storage. So if, for example, I record a television show in channels and I think to myself, no, this is something I want to keep forever, maybe as an example, like it, we, we are not doing it anymore, but my kids were obsessed with Paw Patrol for a long time. And what we would do is we would record or I would record Paw Patrol from Nickelodeon on cha using channels. I would record it from my cable television, and then I would suck it into Final Cut Pro. I would remove the commercials, split it, you know, because wow. a lot of kids' TV, a lot of kids' TV is multiple episodes in one 30-minute block, so yeah. I chop it up so, you know, different episodes are in their own files, and then that would eventually get migrated into Plex. This is lunacy. I That's, hear I myself say, saying these what words. What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> this is lunacy, but... I really, this is, it's a hobby and it's also a passion to a degree. I want to know that when I hit play on something, I'm getting exactly what I want with the minimum amount of fuss. Similarly, when we buy Blu-rays, which we haven't done in a long time, to be honest with you, but when we buy Blu-rays, I will take my Blu-ray player connected to my Mac, probably via my CalDigit, and I will rip that Blu-ray and then I will compress it and put it onto Plex. And that way I don't have to worry about the prompts and the menus and the this and the that. It's all immediately available to me. So the Mac mini is running Plex. The Mac mini uh, is running the Plex software. All of the files are stored on my Synology. Um, actually breaking news, my co-hosts on ATP don't even know this yet, but I actually just ordered a replacement Synology for my 10-year-old DS1813+. Plus. This thing literally for 10 years and change has been running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I've gone through some hard drives. We're, on, we're at a ship of Theseus level with the hard drives, but <laughs> the unit as a whole has survived for 10 years. And so all of the data, all of the media files are stored on the Synology, but the Mac mini that's sitting physically right on top of the Synology, okay. it reads all of those via the network and it, it via normal you know, SMB mount and it presents them to users. And so Again, what you do with Plex is you install the server software. You can install it in many different places. I like running it on a Mac because I don't have any PCs in the house. I don't want to manage a PC, but you can run it in other places. 
And it looks at all your media files and it presents them to you in a really nice, very pretty and and really good interface. The Plex interface clicks with my brain. Now, famously, our mutual friend, Mike Hurley, he does not care for Plex, does not think it matches his the way he works and the way he thinks. And that's fine. I'm not saying I'm right or he's wrong, even though I'm right and he's wrong. But I'm not saying that. Uh, but nevertheless, Plex has has a really nice layout where you know you can you can create libraries as they call them. And so I have a library for movies, I have a library for TV shows, but I also, attention Stephen Hackett, have a library for Apple Keynotes. Yeah. And although I haven't I haven't kept up with that recently, but I would drop the keynote recordings and I would put them in their own library so they're sequestered off to the side and if I desire to refer to a keynote from years past, I can do that in Plex super easily. Um, I also am a Dave Matthews Band fan. Judge away. I t- I've heard everything, I assure you. I really like the Dave Matthews Band. And there was a window of time, particularly during the pandemic, that they were releasing or broadcasting um, the concerts, the, the, you know, full concerts. And it got to the point that I have a dedicated library just for Dave Matthews Band concerts because I have like 30 or 40 of them. And speaking of concerts, I also really enjoy watching and listening to concert films. You know, mm-hmm. the seminal example of this is the, you know, the, the talking heads stop making sense, but there's many, many other examples. Again, during the pandemic, a lot of times I would record, um, I would record concerts that were being broadcast on the web and I would have, and I would be streaming them, but I would also use software to, um, to record those to my, to my computer. And then I would stick those on Plex. And so Plex can be more than just movies and TV is what I'm driving at. And a lot of Plex, most of it is free to get the service software is free to get the clients are free. You only have to pay when you start doing some of the more robust, robust stuff. And and Steven, I think you've done a little bit more research on this. So jump in whenever you're ready, but like being able to download files onto an iPad, say for use in the plane or an iPhone that requires what they call Plex Pass, which is basically their subscription service. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, the TV stuff, I believe, requires Plex Pass. Uh, I forget what else. Do, do you, you probably have this in the show notes somewhere. Yeah, you've got downloads for offline playback, uh, HDR support. So if you've got a bunch of HDR content, uh, the online DVR, which you mentioned, and then Plex Amp, which is like this weird side product for basically doing like hosting your own music library. Uh, I don't, I don't, I've never, I mean, I've got a Plex set up. I've never touched Plex Amp. I have no, yeah, <laughs> no I haven't either. Uh, curiosity there. But the pricing I think is pretty good. It's five bucks a month, 40 bucks a year, or 120 bucks lifetime. And I know not to rehash the call sheet discussion. I know some people do or don't like lifetime, subscri- I mean, a lifetime option. But, if you're really invested in building up your own uh, sort of your own collection of media, nothing in the world is quite like Plex. And so I think if you were this sort of person, the 40 bucks a year or 120 bucks one time is probably well worth it. Yeah, agreed. And, and I did, you know, well, I was comped a lifetime pass, but I assure you around the time that it was comped to me, I would have been buying one anyway, because it is so good. Now, if you're sitting here wondering to yourself, well, why, why do this? I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. And for me, it's because a, I kind of enjoy just that it's, it's silly, but I enjoy kind of the maintenance of it. I enjoy the collection, you know, it's, it's a hobby to collect the media that I care about. And I just enjoy that. Um, I also, 
I, I like everyone else, I only want to have but so many subscriptions. And so I don't really care if I don't get to see Game of Thrones when it comes right out, you know, when it comes out new. In fact, I've never seen it to this day. But, you know, I could go and buy a, the series on Blu-ray or on DVD or what mm-hmm. have you. If you wanted to go that route, which we're not going to talk about here, there are other ways you can acquire things like this. And and all of that can be can live in Plex. And the best part of this is no matter what, that will never go away. Now, if you have small children, think or even if you have children at all, think back to the time when they were small and think about how they kind of like to imprint on things. Like they just decide they're obsessed with, say, Paw Patrol or Gabby's Dollhouse or Peppa Pig or Bluey. Well, once they imprint on it, you really need to have that available for your own sanity forever. <laughs> well, maybe not forever, but you know what I mean? Like at a moment's notice, it needs to be there. And you don't know if, you know, if, if Bluey is going to fall off Disney plus tomorrow and then what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Is it likely? Maybe not, but I don't like to rely on that. Plus in the case of Bluey and Disney plus, there are a handful of, of episodes of Bluey that Disney plus for weird reasons have decided are too risque. This is a children's show, mind you, that are too <laughs> risque for American audiences. It's an Australian children's show. show. What's so, going yeah, like, on on that show? <laughs> so one of them, one example, if, if memory serves is that the dad puts on like a front mounted baby carrier. You know what I mean? Now these are all dogs, mind you, but they're, you know, anthropomorphized, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Dogs. Anyways, he puts on a baby carrier and then, you know, mega air quotes here, gives birth to one of his daughters. And they apparently found that that was too risque. Now, again, this is a show designed for like five-year-olds, but uh, apparently our Americans uh, would clutch their pearls too much. So anyway, so, you know, if you could, if you had a way to come up with that copy of Bluey or that episode of Bluey, you could put that in Plex and not have to rely on Disney Plus who won't carry it. And you can put all these things on your phone if you have a Plex Pass and use them on a plane or in areas of low coverage or whatever the case may be. So. If you if you're not interested in this, that probably makes you normal. But if you're the kind of person like Apple, I could argue that really wants to own the whole widget and control what your family has access to, perhaps in a parental guidance way, but more just in a I want to make sure it's their way, then then Plex really is incredible. And I think it can live pretty easily side by side with your other streaming services, the stuff you've purchased from Apple. Yeah. Because Plex has a tvOS app and an iPadOS app and iPhone app. So you can just have it in line with your other stuff. You know, at least in my household, the Apple TV is television, right? We yep, don't have same. cable. Uh, I do pay for live TV through Hulu when it's uh, when it's sports season. So football is going to start up, so i got to start paying for that again. But having just another place where this other sort of stuff lives is really useful. And I don't think it's as hard as it looks. Like we talk about Plex and you got to have a server and other stuff. We're going to talk about the server hardware aspect in a second. But I think I think Plex has done a pretty good job at the onboarding and and getting it set up. And uh, where my confusion comes a, a little bit with Plex is that, okay, it's this tool to manage your media and to have it available to you on your other computers and even across the world if you have your network set up correctly. But they also have their own free streaming service with some TV shows and movies that they have. None of it's particularly that good, I don't think. Like I was looking at the, <laughs> the TV list as we were talking. It's like, I mean, some of the stuff I guess I would just put on in the background, but it's not cable TV, right? It's sort of 
yeah, older yeah. stuff for the most part. You look if you love the BBC version of Top Gear, they have a channel that's just BBC Top Gear twenty four seven. Like, oh, that's amazing. That's pretty hard to argue with. But Plex makes it easy to kind of pick and choose the features that work for you. So if you never want to deal with Plex Amp, their music thing we mentioned, or you don't care about the stuff that they have streaming, you can basically ignore it. And in a lot of cases, you can turn it off in the user interface and just focus yep, yep, on. Yep on what's important to you. Yep, that's exactly right. And another thing worth noting is that Plex also can be used not just for television shows and movies. So as an example, I have a library that's home movies and remarkable or monumental events in in the list family, you know, uh, lexicon have have been put into Plex and put right there. And that makes it super easy to show family when they come over because it's sitting right there on the Apple TV ready to go. I don't have to go searching through the Photos app I don't even even need to go searching through favorites in the Photos app. I don't need to make a bespoke uh, uh, album in the Photos app, you know, just to get to this stuff. It's all sitting in Plex waiting. Another hidden feature of Plex, which I don't think requires a Plex pass. I'm pretty sure it does not. Actually, I am sure it does not. A hidden feature of Plex, which they don't really talk that much about, but is very cool, is if you happen to be in a scenario where you have friends that are also into Plex, you can become friends within Plex. And once you're friends within Plex, you can optionally choose to share one or more of your libraries, which means that since Stephen and I are Plex pals, if you will, that's my phrase, not theirs, um, he could go and watch any of the Apple keynotes that I have streamed directly from my house to his because I have everything set up appropriately. Now, Stephen would need to do that because he has every damn Apple keynote ever recorded (laughs) in the history of mankind, but you get the the point I'm driving Mm -hmm. at. And, and that, that makes it very cool. And once you get to the point that you have a handful of friends, all with Plex, all with perhaps different tastes in their media, you can end up with kind of sort of your own de facto Netflix amongst you and your pals, which is very cool. And, you know, I've gotten to the point over the years that I have built up quite a robust uh, set of Plex friends. And it is not unusual for, I, I, I guess I should say it is unusual for me to find something that isn't covered by one of my many friends on Plex, which is super duper cool. So Casey, I know you didn't go to law school. Did anybody on this podcast <laughs> go to law school? I'm trying to think. It doesn't. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to jump in here. Uh, <laughs> we're not talking about, uh, you know, finding uh, a QuickTime file on the back of a truck, but like sharing media through Plex. Like, do you worry about that? Like, should people raise an eyebrow at that sort of thing? I mean, I think it is definitely a gray area. Um, I don't personally perceive it as too different than going to somebody's house and having, you know, and watching something that they have access to and you don't. I know that the law would probably take a different opinion to that, but um, I don't know. I, I think it's reasonable, especially because I know that I'm the kind of person that if it's media that I really care about, that's more than just ephemeral, then I'll buy it. You know, I will buy it and stuff it into Plex by either ripping a DVD or whatever, the, or, you know, Blu-ray or whatever the case may be because this is stuff that I really, really care about. And so, yeah, it's a fair question. And again, you know, I think Plex cut its teeth catering to those who exclusively found things off the back of trucks. And that, again, that's a conversation that that is not for me and for another time, even if it were. But um, but no, I, I, I take your point. And one of the complaints that people have had about Plex recently is that they're tr- seemingly trying to move ever further away from exactly what I'm describing and move toward more clearly legitimate uses, I guess. And there's nothing wrong with that. I encourage them to do it. Some people have a a much lower threshold than I do for 
them reminding you that, you know, they have their own free TV and stuff like that. As you said earlier, Stephen, I don't think they're bad about it at all. They're they're not obnoxious at all about it. Unlike I don't know <clears throat> IMDb, but, uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, it is it does happen from time to time, and it's up to you to decide if maybe you want to go a different route. And it's here I'll say that there is there are com- competing um, platforms and and apps and services that do similar things. M B E M B Y is one that I've heard about a few times. Also, a lot of people really like an app called Infuse, I-N-F-U-S-E, particularly for the Apple TV. I played with it once and I didn't really understand what everyone was so obsessed with, but uh, it will talk to network shares directly. So you don't need a Plex server at all, if you just have these files sitting on like a server somewhere. Or it can actually talk directly to the Plex server itself if memory serves. And you, you can just have a different front end to all of your media that way. And and so if, if you wanted to go that route, there's other options. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. No one wins at the waiting game. When it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed because their hiring platform is the only place where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, you can use Indeed's powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. They streamline hiring with powerful tools that help you find your matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. Indeed's hiring platform really is great because they do the hard work for you. Indeed shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. This means that you can set things that users have to be able to check off. This makes it unbelievably powerful. Get this, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join more than the 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your post at indeed.com MPU. This offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com, that's I-N-D-E-E-D, Indeed.com slash MPU to support the show by saying you heard about it on this, your favorite podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the show and Relay FM. For a lot of the stuff with Plex, you need a Plex server. Now, I think people may hear that and think, oh gosh, I got to go spend a bunch of money on a Synology. You mentioned you're running it on a Mac Mini with the files living on a Synology. Mm-hmm. Mine lives on a Mac Mini with everything just on an external drive. Like you don't yeah, have yeah. to to go out and build a data center, um, <laughs> but you do need the 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 server software, and that's a free download from Plex. You you run it; it runs on the Mac, Windows, again Synology, and a bunch of other network attached storage products. And basically, it just is the interface in between all this media out on disk, right? So I have a folder on my. Mac Mini external drive that has all those media files in it. And the Plex server is the software that says, 
okay, this is how you have it all organized. This is all your metadata. These are all your settings about sharing it with other people. It's really not too bad. Uh, but for, for Casey, for people who are getting into it, do you have any advice for maybe what to look for or what may be overkill? Yeah, I think it. what you said is exactly right. I'm probably painting it as this incredibly robust and difficult process, but it does not have to be by any means. You can put the Plex server software on any Mac, and especially if it's not a Mac that can get up and walk away like a laptop, then there's no reason not to. In fact, before I got this laptop, when I still had the iMac Pro, that was my Plex server, because why wouldn't it be? It's always sitting there. It's always plugged in. It's only the, the fact that the Mac can get up, my, my, or my MacBook Pro can get up and walk away. That's what led me to get the Mac Mini. I didn't really have a need for it until then. Um, but yeah, you can, you can put it on basically any machine you have lying around. The server software is not that particularly taxing, especially if you don't have to transcode media. So what does that even mean? Well, generally speaking, if you are you know, recording something or, ta- or ripping something off a DVD, it's going to be in a, in a file format that Plex can easily understand. And more importantly, the client can easily understand you know, your Apple TV, your iOS device, whatever. However, if you're remote, say you're in the car and your kid is trying to watch Bluey, maybe your, your phone cellular connection, because you're not sitting on my favorite park bench or a picnic table, but rather you're in a car hurtling down the road, maybe the connection isn't super stellar. And streaming you know, a 4K version of Bluey, I don't know if that even exists, but just go with it here. Uh, if streaming a 4K version of Bluey to your cell phone may not really work. So what Plex is smart enough to do is say, oh, this isn't really jiving at all. You know, we, we got we to gotta do something to make this work a little better. And so what it'll do is it'll transcode, which is to say it will convert that 4K Bluey, this hypothetical 4K Bluey, to 1080p or 720p or even standard def if need be. So that this way, it may not look stellar, but at least you're able to watch it and you're not having to pause and buffer every three seconds. If you get to the position that you need to transcode stuff, that gets pretty taxing pretty quickly. But a lot of times, if you're sticking within your own house and your own network, that's not necessary. And again, you don't need a whole network attached storage setup. This is what Steven was just saying. Just buy it. It doesn't even have to be an SSD. Just buy a platter hard drive, which are really affordable these days. Buy one and stick it on the Mac or PC or whatever server you're going to use and just have it read the files off of there. There's no reason not to. The server software is not that particularly demanding. The other thing that's great about Plexo, which I didn't really get into yet, is that it does a really good job of finding metadata for all of your files. So all I did was I pointed Plex to a particular folder that had all my movies in it. And then Plex, if you follow a few important steps, which we'll get to in a second, Plex will look at all those movies and say, oh, okay, well, that one is Central Intelligence and it has Kevin Hart and you know Dwayne Johnson. And it has such and such a poster, which probably came from the movie database. And here's the cast list, which probably came from the movie database, and so on and so forth. And you can get all of this wonderful, rich metadata effectively for free because you didn't do anything. You just put a file on your on your hard drive or on your computer or what have you or on your network attached storage, pointed Plex to it, and then it figured it all out. The catch, though, is that Plex, although it's gotten better over the years, is pretty opinionated about how you organize your files. I wrote a blog post about this way back when. I'll see if I can dig this up for the show notes and, and have Stephen put it in there for you. Um, but the, the the file naming situation isn't really that complex. It's just you have to follow the rules. And in in the case of Plex, for movies, for example, 
what that typically means is you'll have the movie uh, file name, or the, the file will be the movie name, space, open parentheses, the year, close parentheses. So as we were talking about before, let's take the movie Central Intelligence and I'll look on the movie database and figure out when it was made or when it was released. And so you would name that file, you know, Central Intelligence Paren 2016 Paren. And then that lets it figure out, okay, that's this file. When it comes to TV shows, typically what you'll do is you'll have a TV show's name as a, you you would have a folder of the TV show's name, say, I don't know, what's a TV show that Stephen likes? I don't know, maybe The Office, for example. Yeah, I think I hear you've watched that once or twice. So you would have The Office, (laughs) and then you would have within The Office, season one as a folder, season two as a folder, season three as a folder. In season one, you would have The Office space hyphen space SO1EO1, which is to say season one, episode one, and so on and so forth. Now, this sounds really complicated when I describe it verbally, but if you're looking at it in front of you, it's actually pretty darn straightforward. It, but you have to follow these rules in order for Plex to be able to understand, oh, okay, this is the office. Oh, there's the season one folder. Oh, okay, this is season one, episode one. And then it figures everything else out for you. So that's the, I think that is the bigger catch than having to have like a bespoke computer or bespoke server software or bespoke hard drive or anything like that. You can typically put together a Plex server with what you have laying around the house, particularly if the kind, if you're the kind of person that listens to this program. but you do have to be, you have to follow the rules and, or really the conventions about, uh, about the way you name your files. And again, I, I did find a, a link in the show. Or I have a link that I will have Stephen put in the show notes from 2015, where I detail kind of the, the brass tacks, bare bones. Here's how you name your stuff. And it's really fairly straightforward. Casey, as you alluded to, Plex is just part of your media ecosystem in the list household. Uh, mm-hmm. What else do you have going on over there? Right. So we talked about channels, you know, and we don't need to belabor that. We've already mostly spoken about that. Um, but the other thing that I haven't brought up yet is I am one of those people. We actually were just talking about this on ATP recently. I'm one of those people that doesn't like a silent house. I need to have something on in the background that can mean television or movie or whatever. But generally speaking, more often than not, it means music. And so for me, I want to always, always, always have some sort of music playing in the house. And a few months ago, I think it was around November-ish, I was able to get myself a steeply discounted Sonos setup for my home theater. And now I have turned into that guy. Everyone has one of these, or almost everyone has one of these in their lives, or at least in their periphery. One of those people that has gotten a Sonos speaker and now won't shut up about how great Sonos is. So hello, it's me. I'm <laughs> it's the a, problem. It's me. It's a lifestyle. <sighs> it's not, it's more than a product. Yeah. Right. Right. It is so bad. The, the, the fans of Sonos are so bad. We're getting to like Tesla level at this point, which is not good, but nevertheless. Um, so what is Sonos? Sonos is the Apple of you know, connected speakers. If you ask me, uh, what I did was I got there, I think it's called a premium immersive set. I should have prepared and looked at what, what I got, but suffice to say, it's a sound bar, two rear speakers. They actually have newer rear speakers than what I got, um, and a subwoofer. And that's in the home theater, that's in the home theater in the, in the living room, um, in the, in the main TV in the house. Then I, I later got a Sonos Rome, which is kind of sort of like a jam box. If you're an old man like me. Uh, it's a Bluetooth speaker that's roughly the same dimensions as the the regular Jambox was, except it sounds way better. And I'm a, I say that as a Jambox fan. 
Um, and that lives in our bedroom on a little charging base, which the, the, the Rome will charge on any Qi charger, but they have a bespoke base that you can get that it fits on just perfectly and so on and so forth. And then later, um, just a couple of months ago, I got myself a move, which is their big beefy, uh, portable speaker that lives behind me as I sit right now in the office. And it serves double duty as both the office uh, sound system, as well as because, you know, given the name move, guess what? You can pick it up and move it. And if we're entertaining outside, we have a Sonos port, which is connected to um, third party speakers that are in our screened in porch. But that only covers the porch. It doesn't cover the backyard. And darn it, I'm going to have music everywhere. <laughs> and so and so I have the move that I can stick in the backyard, uh, you know, just work, working on battery power in order to provide music to the backyard. So a total of, what is that? It's one, two, four speakers. You know, this is a sub, two rears and sound bar. So sort of kind of four speakers in the entertainment center. Uh, a speaker up, two different speakers upstairs, two speakers connected to the, uh, to the port in the screen, in the, in the screen and porch. So I've got music all over the place and I'm already eyeing up my next Sonos purchase because I am, I am a man with a problem. Um, but what is, what is so great about Sonos? Well, first of all, it supports airplay. So if you have, if you're in the Apple ecosystem, you can airplay to any of these Sonos speakers they all connect over Wi-Fi and you, even the portable speakers, they can run over Bluetooth if you so choose, but by default, when they're at home, they run over Wi-Fi and you can airplay to them. Sonos also has an app, which isn't perfect, but is really, really good. And what's great about the Sonos app is that you can connect it to Apple music. You can connect it to Spotify. I think you can connect it to uh, the Amazon music. I forget what that's called, like prime music or whatever it is. You can connect it to Sirius XM. Uh, I am not a big Sirius person, but I'm not a big Sirius XM person, but uh, my wife, Erin loves listening to the radio in the car. And so we maintain a, a, an account on her behalf. Well, we can connect that to the Sonos. And so if we wanted to listen to Sirius XM in the house, we can do that. And you can go into the Sonos app and you can just tap around and pick out whatever you want to listen to across all these different services. And you can have the speakers take care of streaming that music themselves. So you're not putting your phone in a position where it's airplaying and it's using its battery and so on and right. so forth. And you can leave, right? And the music just and keeps going. And you can going. leave. Exactly right. Now, they do support AirPlay 2. I don't know enough about how AirPlay works to understand when AirPlay 2 works and when it doesn't, but yeah, no one does. Um, <laughs> it's impossible. I don't think anyone does. Yeah. But so AirPlay 2, it, the theory is that you should be able to, to do something over AirPlay, but then the speaker will take care of how to fetch that media and play it and so on and so forth. So you're not roasting your battery. I don't know if that's actually true, but that was the theory behind it. But the idea is, like you said, you can set all this up and you can, you can start something playing and you can leave the house and it'll keep going. Sonos also integrates with a lot of different things. So very briefly, I am also a Lutron Caseta super fan. They do smart home stuff that actually works. And we have, I think it's called a Pico remote. It's a little teeny tiny remote. I don't even know how to describe it. It's, you know, two or three inches tall and a couple inches wide. I forgive, forgive me. I don't know what that is in metric, but it's a very, very small remote, very, very thin. And you can actually tell Lutron Caseta's app, hey, when I, when I use this remote, I actually want to control such and such Sono speaker. So I can actually volume up down on this remote that I can carry around the house. That is, can, that is not smart in any way. It's, you know, it's a dumb remote, but I can carry it around the house and volume up and down. I can play pause. I can go to the next track. 
And, uh, and it also has a button that lets you cycle through your favorites within Sonos. So I have a playlist that I adore. That's mostly like, um, what I call funk. It's probably strictly speaking soul from like the sixties and seventies. Um, I have, I have the Dave Matthews serious channel on there because hello, it's me. Um, and then there's one other, oh, and a tailgate playlist that we use. That's more general purpose music that we use when we go tailgating. And so I can hit the little button on the remote and any of those will cycle through the porch. I keep the remote on the porch and it will cycle through the porch speaker. So I can walk out onto the porch, grab the remote, hit the little button. And next thing I know, I have, you know, I, well, if I'm David Sparks, I have, you know, Miles Davis playing, but for me, I have, you know, the temptations or something like that playing on the porch. And I haven't had to talk to anything. I haven't had to use my phone. It just works. Yeah. I used to have one of those, those Sonos Picos and, um, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. My kid, I mean, they had one specifically for this and my kids called it the jazz button. Because if you push <laughs> that's it, exactly mm-hmm. it, right? Jazz, but yeah, that's exactly it. And so, yeah, it, it's the problem with Sonos. I love it. I, it gets my highest recommendation. It is darn near bulletproof. Um, the problem I have with it is that it is very expensive. You do have to pay for it. I mean, I forget numbers off the top of my head, but but you know, had I not had a discount on all this stuff, I'm in something like three or four thousand dollars. I didn't end up paying that much because again, I had a very robust discount. But I'm in thousands of dollars, you know, MSRP on this system. But I, again, I cannot tell you enough how good all this stuff sounds. And my dad is a, um, is, is a stereophile or audiophile, whatever you want to call it. He has a truly absurd stereo in his house. I have heard what a ridiculous multi tens of thousands of dollars stereo sounds like. The Sonos does not sound that good. But it's not that far away. It's surprisingly good. Like you would be stunned how good their sound bar as paired with their subwoofer can sound. I wouldn't put it up with dad's, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars stereo, but it wouldn't it wouldn't be an absolute shellacking either. Like it it would I think it would at least sort of kind of hang in that neck of the woods. You'd be stunned. And the portable speakers, especially the Rome, which is little. It is very little. It's as wide as you know, like an iPhone and a half. It's not that particularly big and it pumps out a surprising amount of bass for that kind of a speaker. And not to say that I'm listening to extraordinarily bass heavy music, but I like to have some bottom end in, in what I'm listening to. And so having something super tinny would not work for me. And even their portable speakers do a great job of this. I can't move on without at least touching on your photo management as well. We spoke about this (laughs) last time you were on the show uh, I know for maybe still for a long time, you were using your Synology to store the canonical list family photo library. Were you mm-hmm. using the Synology photos app as well? No. So uh, briefly, if you're not familiar, Synology is, you know, this network attract, attached storage, but it's more than that. Where, the, where a Drobo, I've never had a Drobo, but my limited understanding was it was basically just a box of disks and little else. The Synology is a full board Linux computer and it has its own like operating system and so on and so forth that you use to, to do anything on it, but it's a full board computer and you can run all sorts of stuff on it, all sorts of apps. You can run Docker on it if, if you're familiar with that. Um, and one of the things you can do on it, you can run Plex on it. Although when you, when it comes to transcoding, most Synologies fall down really quickly on that. Nevertheless, like Steven just said, they have their own bespoke photos app. I think that's called like the Synology photos or something like that. I haven't tried it because around the time I would have, I decided to go all in on uh, on iCloud Photo Library and then later iCloud Shared Photo Library. Yeah. Um, but that being said, the Synology, I do still consider to be the one and only canonical version of our photos. That being said, 
I can't remember the last time I had to go onto the Synology to get a file that I couldn't just pull right out of Apple Photos. I really have been incredibly impressed with Apple Photos. It's really been, again, let me grab my relay block and knock on wood, but it's been it's been extremely reliable and extremely good. And Shared Photo Library has been more of the same in the best possible way. Um, but I, I again, I like to control the whole widget. I want to make sure that if something happens to iCloud Photos, that I am not up a creek. And given that Stephen Hackett particularly was one third of the problem that killed Everpix, it killed Picture Life. What else did you get? You three murder? You murdered like seven yeah, different photo there apps. Was, there was years where on the prompt and then connected, we would cover these like third party photo services and they would just go out of business. I think it's a hard yep. business, right? You got server expense and, and ultimately iCloud Photo Library is how it should always have been, right? It should just be built in yep. to the platform. And and it sounds like even though you're keeping the Synology and you're keeping your, you know, your files backed up that way, you're happy with what Apple's doing? Like Yes. No, that that that, that is very true. And it's exactly what you said. I can I continue to maintain the Synology because I never ever want to be in a position that I have to say, oh crap. And although I sincerely doubt that Apple would have an issue to the level of me saying oh crap. Nevertheless, I don't trust anyone but me to keep to keep track of it. And I don't think they're sponsoring this episode, but, you know, all of the stuff on the Synology is backed up to Backblaze, like literally two different ways. Three, if you include iCloud Photo Library, um, the Synology ends up getting backed up to another Synology that I have sitting at my parents' house about an hour west of me. Um, I have I have a hard drive in the house that has a backup of all of my photos like I have gone a little bit overboard. I would say I'm almost to the level of John Syracuse, who's my other co-host on ATP, if not worse than him with regard to my redundant backups. But there was a brief window of time where I lost a hard drive on my Synology, which is normal. It had been in service for years. But in in replacing that hard drive, the recreation process on the Synology, because again, the Synology is an array in my case of eight different hard drives, but they work in concert to, to present as one hard drive. Well, anyways, when I replaced one, you know, you ha- they, it has to like rebalance all and reconstruct all that data that's missing, which it can do, but it's extremely, uh, it's extremely, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but hard on the other hard drives that are in the system. And so as I was reconstructing my volume, it ended up taking down a second hard drive. And so I almost lost everything. And at that moment, I swore to myself, I would never put my, myself in that position again. And so my backup strategy, which is uh, absolutely bananas is all over the place. And that's part of the reason why I continue to use Synology for photos or not this photos app, but as a storage for photos is so that this way I know for sure my stuff is backed up literally five or six different ways. This episode of Mac power users is brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one platform for building your brand and growing your business online with Squarespace. You can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience and sell anything products, services, even content. I love building on Squarespace. I've built a whole just legion of Squarespace sites over the years. I just did one for one of my kids' schools, their parent-teacher organization. Look, they want a website. It was 100 years old. It was terrible. It was insecure. It was hard to use. The thing didn't even barely load on an iPhone, right? Uh, With Squarespace, they have something that really with not that much time and not that much effort on my part looks awesome. They can accept donations through it. People can sign up to volunteer. 
if all this great stuff, and if they need to expand in the future with photo galleries or a blog or those other amazing components with Squarespace, it's really easy to do because you don't have to rebuild your website every time you need new uh, functionality. You can just enable it. Things like their online store or email campaigns. You can sell physical and digital products. You can encourage visitors to sign up as email subscribers. All that's built in with Squarespace. And they have really awesome analytics. So you can understand where your traffic is coming from. You can make good decisions about marketing, what channels are most effective, and then you can build your website and strategy around that. Squarespace's new layout engine is called Fluid Engine. It's really awesome. You can customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop and mobile. You can really build anything. Stretch your imagination online with the Fluid Engine. So check out Squarespace today. Go to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Again, squarespace.com MPU. And the code MPU will get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Squarespace.com MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Casey, we always like to end up these episodes talking about some of your favorite apps and services. What brings you joy and delight lately? Have I heard, or have you heard the good word about this app call sheet? It's brand new. It's really good. Now, um, <laughs> what I, I was trying to think of uh, stuff that maybe your listeners hadn't heard about quite as much. So let me start with a couple of obvious ones that they probably have heard of. Um, net newswire for RSS feeds and RSS sure. syncing and reading. Um, I fell out of the RSS world for years and I just basically used Twitter, uh, to, to handle that need in my life around the time that Twitter was imploding. I decided, all right, let me bring, bring back RSS in my life. And I use net newswire to do it. It's free and open source. It's really well made. Again, it's the kind of app that thinks the way I think really, really like it. And again, it's, it's free. There's no reason not to try it. It lives again. It lives. It again. lives I again. mean, that was mm-hmm. for so many of us, that was the very first RSS app and it's, it's really nice to see it back. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Uh, something else that you probably have heard of. And I mean that with no sarcasm, I'm, I'm not really sure, but, um, in the nerd circles, there's a lot of people who have decided that they don't want to use Gmail anymore. I'm one of them. And I decided about a year ago, I think, to move over to Fastmail, which is a occasional sponsor of probably this program, if not others. Um, I am telling you, we, I'm not being paid to tell you this. I have been incredibly impressed with Fastmail. It's one of those things like, why didn't I do this sooner sort of scenarios. It does cost money. Like It, it is not free like Gmail is. But I personally consider it very important to own your own email address, to have it on a domain that you control. And the Fastmail apps are really, really good. Uh, or the Fastmail service is really good. They do have apps that are also good, although I typically just use Apple Mail uh, pretty much everywhere. But if you're considering controlling your own email, Fastmail is very affordable. I want to say it's like five bucks a month or something like that. And it's very, very good and very, very fast. Have you gone down the rabbit hole of of server-side rules with Fastmail yet? I have. I'm not going bananas with them, but I, I definitely have like 20 or 30 rules for moving stuff around. As a matter of fact, just literally yesterday as we record this, I realized that I was getting an uncomfortable amount of feedback about call sheet. Now, a lot of it was like, hey, can you do this? Hey, I love it. But would you consider doing that? But it was too much. And that was all flowing directly into my inbox. And so I created a rule on Fastmail to move that to a subfolder of, you know, a, a folder off to the side and then have it skip my inbox. It's the, these, these things stay unread. So I see them. 
but they're no longer in my inbox, which is excellent. Yeah. Oh, and I should mention if you are a Gmail convert like I am, Fastmail has two different modes it can work in. It can work in the traditional like folders and so on and so forth, like in like any IMAP email that you would expect. Or you can optionally, and this is what I did, put it into what I call Gmail mode, where everything is tags rather than folders. And so it works basically the same way that Gmail used to work. And oh, and very quickly, finally, I had it suck in literally 15, maybe almost 20 years of email. Because I think I got my Gmail address in 2004 and I moved to Fastmail last year. So almost 20 years of email. And I had it migrate that itself on the server side. You know, I logged into Gmail through Fastmail and, and said go. And it took like a few hours. And to the best I can tell, all of my email went over. All of my labels went over. I don't remember if it brought rules over, but I think it could have if I wanted it to. It, it It's so good. I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. And, and so for someone who never really used Gmail, I find it really liberating with the server-side rules. The, the server-side rules are everything you could want. They're so powerful. Mm-hmm. And then I've always been nervous, though, about putting the tag as opposed to folder system into it because, you know, that Apple Mail really isn't designed for that. How does does that work okay for you? It does. I mean, you're right in saying that it's not really designed for it, but it seems just fine. And I mean, this has been going on a long time with Gmail and IMAP. And and for the nerds, Fastmail is actually the, one of the primary, if not the primary uh, people trying to come up with JMAP, which is a new kind of mail protocol that's much more modern and based on uh, JSON rather than XML. Uh, or I think it's XML that IMAP's based on. I don't know. IMAP is ancient and creaky. And JMAP is much, much better. And, and that's basically all fast mail doing that. Um, but no, to answer your question, it's it's fine in Apple Mail. Like I think folders would be better for Apple Mail. Like traditional folders would 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 match Apple Mail much better, but I don't have any particular problem with it. But I'm also a I'm a relatively light label user, you know, or tag or whatever they call them user. I don't I don't go bananas with it for the most part. So I may not be the right person to ask, but for my needs, it's just fine. Um, some other stuff that you may or may not have heard of uh, for almost anyone, and then we'll get a little bit more nerdy, uh, Net, uh, Net Newswire, we just talked about that, Sports Alerts. Um, this is an app that I think John Gruber turned me on to, or maybe it was you, Stephen, it was somebody, but um, it's a really good sports score app. And one of the things I like about it, like the design is fine, but it has extremely good uh, support for the dynamic island on yes. my iPhone 14. Yes. And so you can have it follow, you can tell it to turn on uh, live activity for a sports game you're interested in, and it will appear right on that dynamic island and update quickly and so on and so forth. Uh, it's free for the uses that I have for it. I suspect that there's you know in-app purchases or subscription or something for more um, robust use cases. But for me, I've been using it for about a year now for free, and it's excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really like it. It's definitely the first like really good live activity app I came across and I'm going to reevaluate this this fall like I said football's coming and you know basketball's yeah, not far, not far behind it, but uh I I I really dig it. And the in-app purchases, I think uh I think I paid for one that gets rid of the ads maybe. Um yeah, that you can remove an ad or and you can do some other stuff like I don't care about the pics and stuff in the app, but uh it's pretty great. Um and you know Apple is doing some sports stuff like in like that's kind of falling in between the cracks of of Apple News and Apple TV. I think like where do I go to manage this? And yeah. ESPN and then um 
Another one of these is called The Score, which I think maybe was at some point owned or in partnership with Yahoo or something. But Sports Alerts is the best that I've seen in terms of live activity and and those notifications. And so in, from that perspective, I really don't care that the design is not that good because I, I really don't ever see the app. Like I, I yep, really just want to keep up on the lock screen or in the uh, dynamic island on my phone. And they even do this this cool thing. It got added at some point. It wasn't there initially. Where it would send you a push notification before a game started, like if, for your favorite team or however you had it set up. And it would say, hey, do you want to start a live activity? Because live activities can't start on their own. They require uh, human interaction, I guess, mm-hmm. to, to begin. So it's pretty pretty clever to, the way to get around that. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. And then getting more nerdy still. Um, I don't know if maybe you, you folks have talked about this in the past, but Pushover is a really, really cool uh, notification service. So what Pushover does, and this is more more for maybe developers, but certainly for nerds, but what Pushover does is it's a, a, a way that you can call a web service and it will send a push notification to your phone. So I use this as a notification system for several different things, but I wrote a very short uh, shell script that when I'm running like a long running operation, say I'm, I'm G-zipping uh, a backup of my Raspberry Pi, which I did about an hour ago, and that takes a while. Or if I'm um, doing a conversion with FFmpeg, that can take a while. Then I can have I can chain on the end of that command on the command line. I can chain my little shell script that's that will then ping my phone and send it a push notification saying, "Oh, that's done." And there's a bunch of different services that um, that also integrate with this. Uh, like I think if t- 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 you know if this and that integrates with it, and a bunch of other stuff does too. But if you're interested in having control, well, maybe not control is the right way to phrase it. But if you're interested in in pushing uh, or well, in sending push notifications to yourself or whatever the case may be, um, pushovers are really really great and easy way to do that. And I recommend that. Pushover used to be like a big deal before Apple got serious about notifications. I'm glad to see that it's still around and and people are still using it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really like again, it it takes a properly nerdy kind of person to use it, but I, I do really really like it and I use it more than I would have ever expected. And then my last pick, and now we're getting into deeply nerdy territory, is ChangeDetection.io. Now this is a web service, but it's also open source. And the idea is, what if you have something you want to watch, but you don't have an RSS feed for it? And maybe you just want to see if something changes, or perhaps maybe there's something you're interested in buying, but you don't want to buy it at the price it is. You want to wait for it to go on sale. Something similar to Camel, Camel, Camel for Amazon, but you know more generic. And it doesn't. It's not only for buying stuff. It's for anything that changes on the web. Well, what I do is I run this in a Docker container on my Synology, but you can also pay them a few bucks a month to do it on their end, and you can have this thing watch web pages and tell you when they change. And one of the ways they can tell you is by pushover. Another way they can do it is via an RSS feed that you will, you'll get a new entry on the RSS feed when something changes that you want to watch. And so I use this for watching, like I said, if something is about to go on sale. Um, we had, I briefly made mention of the talking heads stop making sense earlier. And uh, some studio, I think 824 or something like that is remastering it for 4K sometime this year. And so A24's website has a page about this, but they don't have any release date. And one of the things I have my changedetection.io instance doing is looking to see if that website change or web page changes so I know when it's going to be released. Because again, no RSS feed. 
it's one of those things like pushover where you use it for one or two things to begin with, and then suddenly you're using it for freaking everything. And another great example is WWDC time. I have it turned on so that as soon as the Apple developer site changes, which typically only happens a few times a year, particularly in June, then it will send me all the alerts from everywhere it can to tell me, uh oh, it's WWDC time. So that's another great example. Very cool. I like the increasing nerdiness of these things. It's good. Yeah, I tried real hard. I, I tried to have a little bit of a path there. We'll, I'll let you decide if it worked. Casey, where can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so you can find me on the web at www.caseylist.com, C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. Um, I, you can find links to basically everything there, including call sheet. Uh, I'm not currently active on Twitter, although I am. I do maintain an account there. I am active on Mastodon. I am Casey Liss at mastodon.social. You can find my podcasts. Uh, there's Analog here on Relay FM with our mutual friend, Mike Hurley. Uh, that's kind of our feeling show. And then my other nerdy show, other than this one that I've been so thankful to be a guest on, is the Accidental Tech Podcast at atp.fm. And go to the App Store and check out Call Sheet. That's all one mm-hmm. word. C-A-L-L-S-H-E-E-T. It is, uh, you know, it's the best way to find out who the heck that guy is on the screen. Yeah, I could not agree more. Thank you to our sponsors, 1Password, NetSuite, Indeed, and Squarespace. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU, and we'll see you next time.